Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Last month, federal agencies published a proposed rule regarding requirements created by the No Surprises Act, a section of the Consolidated Appropriations Act that passed at the end of last year. That proposed rule deals with broker compensation and transparency requirements for individual and short-term limited duration plans. But this proposed rule did not deal with compensation disclosure in the group market. So what's happening there? On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, Marcy Buckner is here to discuss how NAHU is handling the group market disclosure requirements ahead of potential regulations and what sorts of questions we were able to pose to the Department of Labor this week. Agent, broker, and consultant disclosure in the group market is obviously a vital area for NAHU membership. So how are we ensuring that NAHU has a place in this conversation? Thanks, Dan. And just as you pointed out, Last month, we received that proposed rule that touched on individual and short-term limited duration broker compensation transparency. And this is because this is under the purview of HHS for individual and short-term limited duration. Again, that's under HHS for them to provide guidance and regulations on. And so since that rule came from HHS, we did not see anything touching on the group market because the group market broker disclosure is going to be under the Department of Labor. So this week, we had a meeting with the Department of Labor. We've been asking for one since this came out in the statute in the CAA at the end of last year. And as you can imagine, there was a lot in the CAA that the Department of Labor had to deal with. So they have been releasing rules on several different areas from surprise billing to some delays that we saw on some of the other planned transparency pieces, like some of the PBM things that we've discussed on the podcast previously. Now it it seems as though they've gotten to us on their list, the broker transparency aspect of the CAA. And we were able to meet with them this week to go over some letters that we've already sent to them about the group broker disclosure pieces that we sent earlier this year, as well as an offer of ours to provide them with some examples of some FAQs that we think would be helpful for the Department of Labor to release to help agents and brokers to be in compliance with the group broker disclosure requirements. So yeah, there are a lot of potential questions that NAHU could ask the DOL in this area. So what did our FAQs for the DOL focus on? First, and I know this might sound silly to some people, our first question was about the implementation date. So the statute says that this is required for all contracts entered into on or after December 27th, 2021. And just saying that, we already have a lot of questions. 
and, and again, I know it may seem frustrating to have questions about just a few words and that phrasing, but we have had members ask us about this. We've had different ERISA attorneys provide differing interpretations of that wording of the statute and looking at whether a contract is signed prior to 1227, but it's for a plan year for 1-1 or 2-1, does the plan year implementation date need to be taken into account instead of when it was actually signed? And so those are some of the questions that we brought up as part of this FAQ and, and using examples that a contract is signed on 12-15 for a 1-1 plan year. Our example was that that does not fall under the requirements until that plan is up for renewal or a new contract is signed. And working through these examples with them, and, and as I talk about these FAQs and the meeting that we had with the Department of Labor, none of this conversation is binding from the Department of Labor. They are still working with the information that we discussed on our call. Nothing is formal from them until we receive it in an FAQ or some sort of guidance. And, and they did not confirm that that is, is what they're working on. But I think it's just helpful for you all to know some of the conversations that we had and to know that these concerns were, were definitely recognized by them. We spent, I think, maybe 20 or 30 minutes just talking about this implementation date example, which again, I think shows how much we do need guidance on different aspects of this statute and the fact that there's some wording that may seem like it's very straightforward, but can lead to a lot of complications. Some other concerns, even within that phrasing of the implementation date was concerns about agents and brokers that don't use contracts that instead have a service agreement or a broker record, a BOR. So how does that fall into the wording of when a contract is signed? And so we suggested in, in an answer to that, that it would be when the BOR was filed with the carrier or when the service agreement was agreed to or when the group application was submitted to the carrier. And so that there are, are several different options that can reflect when an arrangement, a relationship, a business relationship has been entered into between the client and the agent or broker. And so I think even that sheds some light on the different types of arrangements that agents and brokers have with their clients that weren't necessarily reflected by the statute. And again, we're not trying to get around being in compliance. And, and I think that is why the DOL was so willing to meet with us and, and spent so much time with us. They actually spent much longer than they had planned on their calendar with us, which we were very grateful for. But I think it was because we, we see these questions and we want to make sure that you all are able to have the resources from the Department of Labor that are available to you to be able to be in compliance. So that's one really great example of just how difficult it can be to, to read through the statute and try to have a meeting of the minds of what some of this language means. So we had a lot of discussion about the implementation date, what a contract is, what an agreement is, and then... We also looked at some of the different ways in which compensation can be earned, some of the complications between indirect and direct compensation, as well as some of the other arrangements for like multi-year contracts and others that, Dan, I think you're going to ask me about in a minute. So yeah, these are all areas which we presented FAQs to the department. 
We had several FAQs regarding the calculation of compensation, particularly in circumstances where that compensation may fluctuate. What did we say in this area? Yeah, so this is one of the biggest pieces, right? Because of the the language of the statute, even though it allows for a good faith effort to provide an estimate of what an agent or broker reasonably expects to earn, I know a lot of people are concerned, especially with indirect compensation and compensation that can be earned based on your book of business and not necessarily compensation that is directly attributable to a specific covered plan for for that client that you're interacting with. So we had a lot of questions about this. And it's always flattering when you have an agency quote back to you language that you have provided in a statute. So if we rewind to... 2020, while we were meeting with Congress and trying to help to fine tune some of the language in in this section, we knew that some of our greater asks to take out small group and individual market from this statute were not being received. And so we went back kind of with a scalpel to try to do some fine tuning on the language. And, And one of those pieces was to make sure that there wasn't an exact amount that was being required for agents and brokers to disclose because we know that your compensation can change based on a number of factors, right? So we suggested that Congress, uh, specifically Senator Alexander, make some amendments to that language so that it allowed for agents and brokers to provide some sort of calculation and, and good faith estimate of what they, they could expect. And so when talking to the Department of Labor, the questions that we posed that would be great examples for them to release to you all were specifically about this percentage and the calculation and, and what would count for that. Because we wanted to make sure that the language that we provided to Congress and the intent that we had behind that, that ended up getting in the statute. Um, so, we're, so we're pleased because we believe that does provide more of a safe harbor than having the requirement to provide a specific amount, which is pretty near to impossible for many of you when you're doing it prospectively at the beginning of a contract year. And so we wanted to make sure that was reflected in how the Department of Labor was also interpreting that language and how they would see it with their oversight of the statute on the regulatory side. And so in those conversations, it seemed as though, and again, I'm saying it seemed as though, because I want to make sure that we all understand that these conversations aren't binding until we get something formal from the Department of Labor. I'm going to say that a lot today, but it seemed as though they were in agreement that providing some type of calculation, a commission structure, a commission schedule, being able to provide formula or calculation, example calculation of how you would earn your commission based outside of any direct compensation from that covered plan. So looking at indirect compensation, a bonus or something like that, that that would count towards being in compliance with the statute. They repeatedly said that this was a good faith estimate of what an agent or broker would reasonably expect. And so what they're doing, they're repeating back the statute. So that's not, you know, giving any tell or releasing any private information from from our meeting with them. They are repeating the wording of the statute and repeating it in the ways in which we intended it when we provided that wording to Congress. So that was, was very encouraging. I think that 
we'll also perhaps see, they, they did ask if having clarification on that would be helpful to agents and brokers. And we said, yes. Obviously, if they asked if, if any, any clarification on any of these pieces would be helpful, we said, yes, we know you all want that. And any little bit that helps you all to be in compliance helps. But just knowing that providing those calculations or a structure or a formula is in compliance, I think is very helpful. One thing they did say was that providing a formula on your website that just shows how some of your different types of indirect compensation could be earned, that probably would not be considered in compliance. It probably would need to be in the plan document in an agreement with the specific client and not just in a broad statement on your website. But again, I'm not providing formal guidance on that. That just kind of gives you an indication of in a casual conversation where they were falling on how that should be provided. What about errors? Say if an agent or broker makes an error in the disclosure process. Right. So in the statute, it says that if an error is made, the agent has 30 days from the time that they discover the error to go back and disclose this to the client. And on this, we wanted to make sure that we had a better definition of what an error was, because we want to make sure that there's a delineation between an error and fluctuation in commission. And when I say that, I mean fluctuation in commission that happens outside of the control of, of an agent or broker, which, which much of it is, right? So an error we determined was going to be very specific to a typo, to mistakenly attaching a commission schedule for a different plan or, or something to that nature, um, not something that was going to be based on something that was outside of the agent or broker's control. Last Friday marked the beginning of the Medicare annual election period. Among the most difficult enrollment challenges that agents encounter is choosing the right election periods on applications for Medicare Part D and Medicare Advantage products. NAHU Medicare Advisory Group member Danielle Roberts recently released a video on election period mistakes to avoid during the follow-up enrollment. Are you interested in seeing this video among future videos in this series and all the other Medicare resources that NAHU makes available? Then you'll want to look at the Medicare portal on NAHU.org. To access, simply go to NAHU.org and scroll down and you will see a link to the Medicare portal right in the middle of the page. So in comparing the errors to what we just talked about with your previous question about how does an agent disclose if they anticipate that they could have a fluctuation in their commissions, with looking at those differences, to be able to prevent an error or what could be perceived as an error, we may not think so, are things like, for example, if an employer changes sizes during the plan year and moves from one tier to another of how much the commission base is going to be based on that employer size, whether they decrease in size or increase in size, your commission could change. And so with this, there are a few different things that could apply here based on the statute. If your commission changes, you're supposed to disclose that. 
we don't think that that example is an error. We think that's just that your commission is changing based on the size of the employer. And again, like I said, with this example, there are a few different ways that this could play out. If at the time that you entered into the agreement with the client, you provided them with a commission schedule that laid out all of the different tiers for employer size that showed that if their size fluctuates, that your commission could fluctuate, then you've already provided them with that information. So if their size changes, there probably isn't a need to provide another disclosure in the middle of the plan year that there has been a change to your commission because you've already provided them with what could happen based on any change in size. And once again, these are based again on casual conversations. This is not binding until we receive further guidance, but just walking you all through this type of example, I think might be helpful for the different ways that the statute could touch on it and different ways that it can be treated. So if that commission schedule isn't provided at the beginning of the agreement and your commission does change based on the size of the employer, one of our other questions is about the 60-day requirement that agents and brokers have where upon learning that they have had a change in their compensation, they have 60 days from the date upon which they realize that there has been a change to disclose to the client that there has been a change. And so in our questions, we had the conversation that with changes in commission, oftentimes you all don't find out until much later after that change in size has happened. Sometimes you don't learn about it until you've actually received that change in commission, whether it's a decrease or an increase. Sometimes you don't find out until much later through a different type of notification from the carrier. And so we ask that that 60 days and the, and the date of, of becoming aware is really the date of any difference in commissions. And so that is something else that they're still taking into consideration. Also recognize that if that full commission schedule is provided in advance, then any of these changes won't have to lead to providing that notice that there has been a change in your commission throughout the year if there is a change in the employer structure. We also went over different types of arrangements, like we mentioned before, like those with TPAs and, and some multi-year contracts. So how do we think disclosure should work in those cases? I think we provided the Department of Labor with a lot to think about here with the different relationships and ways that agents and brokers work with TPAs, vendors, and consultants, also the different ways that clients do so. And the relationships there and trying to focus in on which of these entities have relationships with the covered service provider. And so when we're, we're looking at this, who has the relationship with the employer and who should be disclosing commissions and compensation in these different arrangements. And we provided a lot of really great examples with this, especially with using PBMs, which we know that they're very, very well aware of, especially with that delay on some of the PBM pieces that we saw from the CAA. So I think that we could possibly see some further guidance on this about those different relationships and where they need to be disclosed. 
to show what entities are earning commission and who needs to be the entity that is disclosing. So if the agent is using vendors or TPAs or consultants for some of the services that they're providing, but the agent isn't earning a commission off of it, it's actually the the different vendor or TPA that's earning a commission off of that client, then should it be the vendor or TPA that is providing that disclosure? Again, these are parts of the conversations and things that are being raised as questions to help us be in compliance and make sure that where we think that should be on the other entities to provide that disclosure. We want to make sure that that is clear so that you all know what your responsibilities are with disclosure with your group clients. So hopefully we'll see some more guidance specifically on, on this piece, because I think it is a little bit more difficult than some of the other sections. So what about any potential delays or safe harbors? Did we request anything like that for these requirements? Well, we've been requesting a delay since we received the statute when it passed at the end of 2020, just because we did feel so strongly that we needed more guidance. As you can tell, we've touched on just a few things here and can go down several different rabbit holes of issues with compliance with with each of the issues that I've, I've raised already. So where we have asked for a delay in the absence of further guidance. At this point, I don't think that we are, we're going to see that. There is no indication that there would be a delay. Again, I'll give my disclaimer that this is, these conversations are all based on a casual conversation with the Department of Labor. Nothing is final or formalized until we receive something in writing from them. But I do think that when... We also were saying, you know, we, it would be great to have a safe harbor, especially for this first year about looking at the language. And if agents are using their best effort, that it's considered to be in compliance. And with that, I will call back on the language in the statute that we provided that the DOL seemed to be focused on, which was that providing a good faith estimate of what an agent or broker could reasonably expect to earn would be in compliance. And so with that, I think when we look at good faith effort and reasonably expect to earn, that provides a lot of, I don't want to say flexibility in a a negative way, as if you're trying to not be in compliance. I think it provides a lot of flexibility to be in compliance and, and to be able to meet the requirements as earnestly as you can. It regardless of whether we do end up with more guidance or FAQs or a delay, I think in absence of a formal safe harbor, the fact that that language seems to be highlighted, not just in the statute, but also from what the agencies are looking at. I'm very pleased that we were able to get that into the statute because I do think it provides a lot of room for you all to provide different ways of disclosing this information. Again, using those formulas, using percentages, not having to tie down to a specific number, providing commission schedules, those sorts of things to to be able to be in compliance, especially if we don't receive further guidance or a delay. So after all of this, did the folks from the DOL give any indication either way about how they may come down on these issues or when we might expect agencies to release guidance? We, we didn't get a timeline. 
Usually we, we don't in conversations like this. I will say that this conversation compared to a, a listening session that we had with HHS that was focused on the individual market, this conversation lasted far longer, which you may expect based on the complexities between the individual and group markets. However, when you're working with the agencies, oftentimes they have very limited amounts of time. And so you can meet the end of your meeting very quickly. The Department of Labor was very gracious with us and spent twice the amount of time that they had allotted with us. So we were very grateful for that. And they seemed very grateful for the information we were able to provide back to them. We did hear them say a number of times, would an FAQ on, on, on this specific issue help? Would more guidance on this issue help? And like I said earlier, our answer to those questions were, were always yes. So I am hopeful and optimistic that we will receive more information prior to the implementation date at the end of this year. But again, this was based on a casual conversation with the DOL and nothing is formal or finalized until we receive anything in writing from them. But I think that as far as NEHU's ability to advocate on your behalf. We were able to communicate to the Department of Labor just how difficult some of these provisions are to try to be in compliance with based on the wording in the statute. And I think that was very much understood by the Department of Labor, as well as our willingness to be in compliance, and that we just want to make sure that we're making it as easy as possible, both for the agency and for our members to be able to follow this statute and not run into hurdles along the way. It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week? This week, of course, we're toasting to the Department of Labor. I know I've repeated several times how grateful we are to have the time with them. Again, this was an NEHU exclusive meeting with the Department of Labor, so a very intimate conversation with them and just a few of, of us. Um, we had a limited number of people that we were able to bring into the meeting, but very grateful for them to sit down with us on Zoom and go through some documentation that we sent over to them, but also for them to provide us with a little clarity on some of these pieces, not quite to see exactly what they were thinking or, or get any promises of, of guidance or FAQs, but the reassurance that our concerns are valid and have been heard by the agency. And we look forward to some resolution on, on many of these issues. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.